You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then, if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds, and cedar wood, and scarlet yarn, and hyssop, And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, and shave off all his hair, and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. And after that he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. And on the seventh day he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair, and then he shall wash his clothes, and bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take two male lambs without blemish, and one ewe lamb, a year old without blemish, and a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, and one log of oil. And the priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed, and these things before Yahweh, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering, along with the log of oil, and wave them for a wave offering before Yahweh. And he shall kill the lamb in the place where they killed the sin offering and the burnt offering in the place of the sanctuary. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It is most holy." The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest shall take some of the log of oil, and pour it into the palm of his own left hand, and dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand, and sprinkle some oil with his finger seven times before Yahweh and some of the oil that remains in his hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, on top of the blood of the guilt offering. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed. Then the priest shall make atonement for him before Yahweh. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness, and afterward he shall kill the burnt offering, and the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be clean. But if he is poor and cannot afford so much, 
Then he shall take one male lamb for a guilt offering to be waved, to make atonement for him, and a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, and a log of oil. Also two turtle doves, or two pigeons, whichever he can afford. The one shall be a sin offering, and the other a burnt offering. And on the eighth day he shall bring them for his cleansing to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting before Yahweh. And the priest shall take the lamb of the guilt offering and the log of oil, and the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before Yahweh. And he shall kill the lamb of the guilt offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. And the priest shall pour some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand, and shall sprinkle with his right finger some of the oil that is in his left hand seven times before Yahweh. And the priest shall put some of the oil that is in his hand on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, in the place where the blood of the guilt offering was put. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed, to make atonement for him before Yahweh. And he shall offer of the turtle doves or pigeons, whichever he can afford, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, along with a grain offering. And the priest shall make atonement before Yahweh for him who is being cleansed. This is the law for him in whom is a case of leprous disease who cannot afford the offerings for his cleansing. Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, There seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. Then the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. And afterward the priest shall go in to see the house, and he shall examine the disease. And if the disease is in the walls of the house with greenish or reddish spots, and if it appears to be deeper than the surface, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house seven days. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day. And look, if the disease has spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take out the stones in which is the disease and throw them into an unclean place outside the city. And he shall have the inside of the house scraped all around and the plaster that they scrape off they shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones, and he shall take other plaster and plaster the house. If the disease breaks out again in the house after he has taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go and look. And if the disease has spread in the house, it is a persistent leprous disease in the house. It is unclean. And he shall break down the house, its stones and timber and all the plaster of the house, and he shall carry them out of the city to an unclean place. Moreover, whoever enters the house while it is shut up 
shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever sleeps in the house shall wash his clothes. And whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes. But if the priest comes and looks, and if the disease has not spread in the house after the house was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean, for the disease is healed, and for the cleansing of the house. He shall take two small birds with cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop, and shall kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water, and shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet yarn along with the live bird, and dip them in the blood of the bird that was killed, and in the fresh water, and sprinkle the house seven times. Thus he shall cleanse the house with the blood of the bird, and with the fresh water, and with the live bird, and with the cedar wood, and hyssop, and scarlet yarn. And he shall let the live bird go out of the city into the open country. So he shall make atonement for the house, and it shall be clean. This is the law for any case of leprous disease, for an itch, for leprous disease in a garment or in a house, and for a swelling or an eruption or a spot, to show when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law for leprous disease. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, yours truly, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 604 of this podcast. That was Leviticus chapter 14 at the top. Uh, A reading about what to do when somebody has leprosy or their house has leprosy is an odd way to start a podcast. I know. Who else is doing this? Where else can you go to get an opening to a podcast episode? with leprosy as the topic. Nowhere but here that I know of. So you're welcome. I'm not sorry. I regret nothing. You're welcome. And this is actually important, right? It is actually important. You might be scratching your head as to how, but once again, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And there are four things. There are four things that All scripture is profitable for to the end of making the man of God complete, as you will recall, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, what is Leviticus 14 profitable for? Is it for teaching? Is it for reproof? Is it for correction? Is it for training in righteousness? Perhaps all four, but if only teaching, we learn something about the character of God, and we also learn some perhaps valuable process example in this passage. Now, you might wonder to yourself, okay, but how does that translate to this day and time that we live in right now? Are we still doing this when people have weird skin conditions? Uh, I'll say, speaking personally, from a very young age, I had eczema, for instance. I've had asthma and eczema. Very often the two go together in people. Well, in my case, these two do go together as well. I have asthma and eczema. And so at various times in my life, I've had 
really, really bad flare-ups of eczema. It's been quite some time since I last did. But when I have, it's been, I have found, due to diet, environment, and stress. And the stress in my life was not just any old stress. It was family dysfunction. It was stress caused by dysfunctional relationships in my life. And you could also say, rather than just preferring psychological terms, that stress was due to people sinning against each other and there not being a clear path forward to make peace and to make restitution and to resolve the conflicts or get through the disagreement in a peaceable way. But I think of going to dermatologists every now and then growing up, not so much in my adult years, because in my adult years, I had more latitude, more ability, thank God, by God's grace, to affect some of those circumstances and more wisdom, more understanding to make better choices, not just with regards to relationships, but also with regards to lifestyle, diet and exercise and such like that. But I think of going to a dermatologist. And what is the dermatologist going to do? The dermatologist is going to take a look at what you've got going on. Hey, show me where you've got some of these flare-ups. And for me, and for very often people who have eczema, the worst spots were all of the parts of my body that hinge. So the inside of my elbows, for instance, or the backs of my knees, or my ankles, or my wrists, wherever there was a pivot point and my skin was having some friction with my skin, that's where I would get these flare-ups of eczema. And when it was bad, it was really bad. It was very embarrassing for me. If anybody would see that I had this skin condition, that made me feel very self-conscious. It was also very uncomfortable. And there were times where it was so bad, I had hard times sleeping. I had a hard time getting to sleep and staying asleep at night because I would just be so itchy and it just felt awful and painful, right? It would be itchy and then it would hurt. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful to the good Lord for not having eczema so bad anymore. I just here recently was starting to notice I had some blemishes next to my eyes that weren't going away. And I was wondering, what is the deal with that? What is that about? I've never had that happen before. And then it occurred to me with my current line of work, I mean, this job, but also the job that I had prior to this one as a controls programmer now, and as a systems integrator, just previous, I am sitting at my computer quite a lot, which is to say my eyes are the primary hinge point. <laughs> my eyes get tired and then I rub my eyes to rub the sleep out of them and to clear them up a little bit as I'm sitting there staring at a screen for hours and hours and hours, day after day, week after week. And so that's where I'm going to have a little bit of an eczema flare up. Nowhere else, just right there. And so I've started to put some creams and some ointments uh, carefully so as to not get them in my eye. I don't want to get them in my eyeball, but I'm starting to see that clear up. And then I'm also taking a look at, am I taking in too much sugar and too much caffeine? Maybe I need to be drinking more water and taking a look at my stress levels and what am I engaged in in life? But now, 
now that I've explained that as a condition I've had, think again about Leviticus 14 and imagine you being somebody who has leprosy or your house having something wrong with it. It almost sounds to me like mold is being described in Leviticus 14 when the priest is supposed to come into the house and examine for spots of a certain color and give it some time, everybody clear out, pull everything out of the house, and then give it seven days and come back and re-examine. If it's still a problem, well, then you might just need to do some major renovation. Well, it sounds like something similar to when people have a mold problem. They have moisture getting into their walls, and all of a sudden, here come these little spots of various colors, and mold can make you very sick, and it can cause respiratory issues. It can cause all kinds of neurological problems, and yes, it can cause irritation of the skin. And so here we have not just a scientific, medical, materialistic engagement, but then you also have some kind of a spiritual significance in that there are offerings that are supposed to be offered. There's a cleansing and purification ritual for the house, for the garments, for the person, and there is a path forward being given for how do we restore if you can. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't restore and you can't purify and it just needs to be put away. This thing that is contaminated or even this person who is unclean has to just be put outside the camp so as to not infect the rest of the community. And that right there, my friends, that right there might have a very physical component, but then also too, there's a spiritual significance to it. And I think of Fast forward to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, for instance, Luke 17. Jesus cleanses 10 lepers in the ESV. We read verses 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village and was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now we look at this and now, maybe with fresh eyes, consider Leviticus 14. What is actually doing the cleansing and the purification in Leviticus 14? Is it this little ritual or is it faith? Is it your faith has made you well? And if the ritual does not, if obeying God in the details does not bring about healing and restoration, is that possibly a sign that this was just going through the motions? I would say so as a possibility, but then we want to be careful to not go too far with that and say, well, if somebody's not well, if they're not healed, if they even get sick in the first place, then that's a sign that they must have sinned. That's an error. That is not something that we are uh, left open to in the whole counsel of God. Consider his servant Job, for instance. 
Consider the question that Jesus is asked at one point, also in the Gospels in the New Testament. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither, Jesus says. Neither. And so also, if somebody finds himself with leprosy, is that ultimately due to sin? Yes. Does it mean that it is due to this man's individual personal sin? Not so fast. Hold on. (laughs) Let's take a step back. That does not necessarily follow. That is a non sequitur from what we know, and we know that from the whole counsel of God. But consider with me Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. We see here, God is not only concerned with the categories of clean and unclean. He's not only concerned with the categories of wicked and righteous. God is also concerned with the categories of wisdom and folly. And if you read Ecclesiastes, the first several chapters, you may resonate. If you're a cynical person, if you're a bit jaded, you may read the first few chapters of Ecclesiastes and come away thinking, yeah, preach it. I also wonder what the point is of being righteous instead of wicked or wise instead of foolish. The same event happens to the wise man and the fool, the righteous man and the wicked man, the same event happens to them both. It's a vanity of vanities. And yet, if you read on, wisdom and righteousness have significance. They have value. They should have value to us because they have value to God. And God ascribes to them value and commends them to us. And so here we have the juxtaposition of wisdom and beauty. And what happens when they're not both together in one person. Now they can be, right? Don't assume. (laughs) Don't assume a a category error in the opposite direction. If somebody is ugly, that means they have bad character. Or if somebody is sick, that must mean that they have sinned or they were unwise. Also, don't assume that just because somebody is good looking, as in they're attractive, they are handsome or they're beautiful, well-dressed, prosperous, materially, don't assume that that means that they are wise. A beautiful woman can lack discretion. That is also to say, on the other hand, that a woman can be beautiful and also be wise. And that would be far better. Why do I bring this up? Well, opt out of Mother's Day, new corporate trend, reeks of anti-family activism. Critics say, Amanda Prestigiacamo over at the Daily Wire, just published a piece yesterday talking about major corporations and businesses that are sending out emails offering a chance to opt out of Mother's Day-related communications. In a viral thread posted Sunday, Twitter account Arizona Informer posted more than a dozen screenshots from businesses sending Mother's Day opt-out offers, noting the similar language used in the emails and equating the trend with anti-family activism. Quote, Something very strange is happening with big corporations, Arizona and former captioned the thread. Quote, out of nowhere, Kroger-owned Fry's Food Store, K Jewelers, Hallmark, and now DoorDash have all sent opt-out of Mother's Day emails to their customer base. Quote, this is not organic, the account charged. Quote, this reeks of anti-family activists. And maybe that is the case. Also, Should we consider that some of this reflects on 
the actions, the conduct, the behavior, the way of relating to motherhood, which many women for a few generations now have made popular. Is this in some sense a backlash against motherhood being denigrated for a long time now to this point? We can celebrate Mother's Day, and I've said for years, there is a disturbing incongruity between how Father's Day is celebrated, observed, if you will, in much of American Christendom and how Mother's Day is celebrated and affirmed. For Mother's Day, you can only say good things. You're only supposed to say good things, I should say. Sermons are unequivocally positive when we come to Mother's Day. You cannot say something negative about mothers. You cannot rebuke them. You cannot challenge them. You cannot critique them. You cannot say, hey, women, you should repent of this, 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 and this that is common to our culture right now. These attitudes are toxic. They are evil. They're sinful. They're unwise. You can't say that on Mother's Day or much of the rest of the year. It can only be good things, and we have to heap praise on women and mothers. On Father's Day, the type of sermon you will very often hear is only praising God as Father and then taking all of the men who are fathers behind the woodshed, metaphorically speaking, and rhetorically, and saying, hey, you guys basically have been screwing it up, all of you. You should all do better. And maybe some of you are okay, but we'll we'll not say which ones, and we'll say the ones who are doing well are the exception rather than the rule. But there is very much a partiality towards mothers and towards women in American Christendom. And this is not good. This is not good. It is an upending of God's order for the family, for the church, for, I would say, the community and the nation as well, found in the Bible. There was a video I watched here recently, though. I want to play it for you, and then I want to talk about a couple of examples which are in the headlines here, oh, just even this past week, looking at them, they're in the headlines. Mother's Day is coming up before we know it, so this is relevant, but I'm going to play a clip for you that my wife sent to me on Instagram of a gal talking through whether what we find in the Bible is patriarchy or something else. Here's cut one. Take a listen. Patriarchy is a top-down power structure where usually men are at the top and then women and then children. This is, has to do with power and it is commonly taught in some complementarian evangelical circles as the culture of the Bible. Even though the term patriarchy in relationship to the Bible didn't come up until I think the 1800s in Europe. The culture of the Bible was actually patriocentrism. That means it centers around what was usually the oldest male and included unmarried uh, daughters, sons, sons and their families, elder members of the um, household that needed care, sojourners and servants, perhaps brothers of the patriarch. All of these people worked together in an integrated network of relationships where power um, shifted between different people for different groups. The patriarch was the family representative in the political and religious sphere, though he did not hold absolute power and could should not be equated to the ruler of the family like in a patriarchy. In patriocentrism, the goal of the patriarch is 
to keep make sure everybody's needs are met and he has the responsibility of watching out for the clan and making sure the family has honor. Okay. So with respect to We Who Thirst, you can look up We Who Thirst on Instagram if you so choose. That's where this video came from. This is part two, patriarchy versus patrocentrism. This was in response, by the way, to a comment from glow.with.gen. I'd love a further look at the myth of patriarchy. <laughs> uh, with respect, and I mean nothing rude by this, uh, I, I think this is silly. I think this is silly. And this is a distinction without a difference, actually. Paterfamilias is probably what we need to distance ourselves more from, which, according to Wikipedia, a paterfamilias was the head of a Roman family. The paterfamilias was the oldest living male in a household and could legally exercise autocratic authority over his extended family. The term is Latin for the father of the family or the owner of the family estate. The form is archaic in Latin, preserving the old genitive ending in as, see Latin declension, whereas in classical Latin, the normal first declension genitive singular ending was AE or I. The paterfamilias always had to be a Roman citizen. Roman law and tradition established the power of the paterfamilias within the community of his own extended familia. In Roman family law, the term patria potestas, Latin power of a father, refers to this concept. He held legal privilege over the property of the familia and varying levels of authority over his dependents. This included his wife and children, certain other relatives through blood or adoption, clients, freedmen, and slaves. The same mos majorum moderated his authority and determined his responsibility to his own familia and to the broader community. He had a duty to father and raise healthy children as future citizens of Rome to maintain the moral propriety and well-being of his household, to honor his clan and his ancestral gods, and to dutifully participate and, if possible, serve in Rome's political, religious, and social life. In effect, the paterfamilias was expected to be a good citizen. In theory, at least, he held powers of life and death over every member of his extended familia through ancient rite. In practice, the extreme form of this rite was seldom exercised. It was eventually limited by law. And not for no reason, I would say. Not for no reason. Now, here again, we find a contrast between God's word on the one hand and between Roman law and custom on the other hand. There's a lot in the laws of other nations and peoples, including the United States of America today, that really is just trial and error. Something bad happens and then there's an outcry. We need more legislation to deal with the growing problem of fill in the blank. And next thing you know, you've got weird laws that you're scratching your head about. Like, why is that a law? But in the case of God's word, what we have is narrative and we have description and we have examples, say, for instance, in Genesis and in Exodus of bad behavior and dysfunction and sin. And then also we have the giving of the law, which you can find examples of it not being followed and us knowing even before we get to the law, well, that wasn't good. Well, that wasn't right. That wasn't proper. That wasn't moral. That wasn't ethical. How did that honor God? And then you have the clarification of God's law and the giving of God's law saying, you are my people and these are my expectations. All on the front end, this is what I expect you to behave like. And God as father is the paterfamilias 
as it were, for his people. Christ is the paterfamilias of the church. And so, yes, God provides. Yes, God protects. Yes, God goes before us and establishes our household of faith. But in the case of human institutions, we should also recognize that biblically, the head of the household was the husband and the father, not the mother. And I would even take some exception to what's being described by We Who Thirst at Instagram. I would take some exception to this idea that it was just the most mature man in the family, probably the father. And then if his father was elderly, he was not the paterfamilias, but he might be part of the household. Then you've got sons and daughters-in-law and unmarried daughters all under the authority of this one man. What we don't find, what we don't find in scripture, to my way of reading it, correct me if I'm wrong, what we don't find is wives being told to submit to their fathers-in-law. We see wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, for this is right. We don't see women submitting to all men, but we do see Paul saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Rather, she is to keep silent as in all the churches. And if she has a question, she can ask her husband when she gets home. But that is to say too, Paul very clearly says, because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, every man should have his own wife. Every woman should have her own husband and they should render to each other their conjugal duties. We also see elsewhere in scripture that having children is praised and promoted. He who finds a wife finds a good thing for one thing, but also children are a heritage from Yahweh. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. We see that contrasted with the sensibility, which is more common to the outside world, a world outside of God's word, the common perception there is whatever you want, whatever you want, what would make you happy? In God's economy, the question is first and foremost, what pleases God? And what is God's purpose for us? And why are we here? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What should we be about? What should we be doing that would be profitable and productive and fruitful? For one, fulfilling the dominion mandate. For two, the great commission Lots more that goes into the practical living out of that in the particulars. But consider the, the case of a man like we find in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? We see George Clooney playing the, I suppose, more modern day equivalent, not quite modern day because Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is still set uh, you know, several decades ago, a century or so ago. But we have George Clooney's character, commenting uh, along these lines. Here's cut two. I got news for you, in case you hadn't noticed. I wasn't hit by a train. And I have traveled many a weary mile to be back with my wife and my six daughters. Seven, Daddy. That ain't your daddy, Alvinel. Your daddy was hit by a train. Penny, you stop that. No, you stop it. Vernon here's got a job. Vernon's got prospects. He's bona fide. What are you? I'll tell you what I am. I'm the paterfamilias, and you can't marry him. I can, I am, and I will. And cut. <laughs> Funny movie, a bit wearying. Uh, <laughs> I'm the paterfamilias, he says. 
And that is supposed to settle it in some people's minds. And that's where you do have to take into consideration the whole counsel of God as a Christian and not just hide behind, well, this is the man of the house. And so he can just do whatever he wants. No, that's an idea that comes not from God's word. The man of the house can't just do whatever he wants and there are no consequences. But then on the flip side, provided what he is directing and what he's doing and what he's saying is not wicked, sinful, deplorable, evil, corrupt, insane, his household should submit to his governance and his leadership and not just expect from him a paycheck and he's the one who answers the door if something goes bump in the night and somebody's trying to break in. It's not just responsibility. There's also authority that comes with that. And so I think what we find is right now in our day where you have corporations sending out emails, offering their customers and their employees a chance to opt out of communications about Mother's Day, we have something of chickens coming home to roost where the breakdown of the family is being responded to with what is an an appearance of sensitivity, but it's not actually a call to repentance. It's just we're going to accommodate these low expectations now the abolition of expectations, the abolition of distinctions generally. And that's the opposite direction of what we should be going. We should be saying to the men, you need to obey God's word, what God's word calls you to as men, as husbands, as fathers, to be faithful to that, to be good stewards of that, to revere God and to obey God in what you've been called to. Also, the wives and the mothers and the children should be called to that as well. But speaking of, let's talk a bit more about some examples of mothers in society right now. Megan Trainer apologizes for saying F teachers. And here I am cleaning up the language a little bit. F teachers while talking about homeschooling on her podcast. Carlos Garcia published a piece over at theblaze.com. April 24th, pop singer. Megan Trainer posted a video on social media apologizing for comments she made on her podcast against teachers. Trainer was responding to her guest saying that she had chosen to homeschool her child. F that. Everyone on TikTok is, Trainer said. They're like, and this is a quote, they're like, this is what it's like to have a kid in school in America. I have a bulletproof backpack. I was like, F all that, end quote, she added. Her guest responded that she pulled her kids out of schools because the other kids were mean and teachers could also be bullies. Quote, teachers, F teachers, dude, end quote. Trainer responded. Trainer was lambasted by an enormous number of critics in the comment section of YouTube who were disappointed by her insult against teachers. She later posted a video on TikTok explaining that she did not mean to insult all teachers when she made the comments on her podcast. Quote, teachers of TikTok and teachers of the world, I recently said F teachers on the podcast. Quote, and it's not how I feel. I was fired up because we were talking about how sending your kid to school here in America is so horrific. And what all of us have to go through, but especially teachers, is not normal and not okay. End quote. Quote, in that moment, I got angry and said, F teachers, F those specific human beings back in the day. But I did not mean that to all teachers. I love teachers. I fight for teachers, end quote. Here, I think we have a microcosm of what's going on more generally. Put this right side by side with the opting out of Mother's Day business. 
And what we have is a backlash against canceling Mother's Day in some sense. And on the other hand, a backlash against saying something that is crude. She shouldn't have used that language. She didn't need to use that language. That was perhaps her first mistake. Her second mistake was apologizing for having said anything negative about teachers when there was a backlash. The point is, it is more problematic in some people's minds to be critical at all of public schools and public school teachers and public school administrators. The whole system has to be protected from any and all criticism. There are some people who are more concerned about that than they are what we would do with the category of mother and father. And then I would say upstream of that, what we would do with the category of husband and wife. And then upstream of that, I would say what we do with the categories of creator and creature. And these things flow one to another. And this is why we homeschool. And this is why my household is run very differently. And it's not to say we have it all together. It's not to say that we are perfect by any means, but we want to honor God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's our intention. That's our endeavor. That's our effort. And we know that God will bless that whether we do it perfectly or not. He will reward that faith and bless that faith. But I look at this situation with Megan Trainer, and I think, yeah, you're identifying real problems that children face. And now you're going to be put in this difficult position. If you speak out against it, you maybe risk your career, your fame and your fortune moving forward because you'll be canceled for being critical of public school teachers. Uh, they might not all be bad, but they are definitely not all noble, upstanding people just because they are teachers. There's an example that I shared with you a while back. It's been months and months now, but an example that I shared with you from Plutarch of a teacher in a particular town that was being besieged by the Romans where the teacher took all of the kids of the town outside the city walls a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further, and then at a certain point took them all the way into the camp of the Romans and offered them up to the Roman general as a way of forcing the surrender of the townspeople. If they knew that they had to surrender in order to get their children back, then they would accept any terms whatsoever. Just please don't harm our children. The Roman general, demonstrating the good character that at one point made Rome the greatest empire in the known world, the Roman general ordered the teacher bound tied up, taken back to the city, handed over to the townspeople to do with what they would. And for all those teachers out there who say, oh, I'm a hero. I'm not paid enough to put up with what I put up with. Don't let yourself become that guy who betrays the trust that has been placed in him for what? For favor with the enemy or for some kind of a ransom, for some kind of a reward. See, how are you going to pay me for having delivered the city into your hands? Are you going to praise me? Are you going to give me money? Are you going to give me some very important station in the new regime? What might actually happen is you get handed over by the enemy to angry parents who are right to be angry at your betrayal. It's not to say all teachers are like that guy, but it is to say you have to consider the possibilities. But it's not to say that all parents are correct either. For instance, there are a lot of parents who are giving into this business 
of the transgender moment and saying our child plays with pink toys. Even though he is a boy, we're going to say that our child is a girl now. Even if they're very, very, very young, it is the fashion for parents to use their children as props to gain social credit. They think. Now, they don't gain social credit with everybody, but there is that same contingent that is so very protective of public schools and teachers. That same contingent will also praise those parents who cause their child to transition from being a boy to a girl or from a girl to a boy, even going through surgery and being put on puberty blockers. Terrible, terrible things are done to children so that their parents can gain some unjust reward. And it's it's awful. It's awful, awful, awful stuff. It is a sign of civilizational collapse when parents do this to their children. And it shouldn't be without comment or without consequence. And Mother's Day should not be celebrated in a way that doesn't critique those kinds of mothers who would offer their children up as a human sacrifice to the equivalent of Molech in our day. An example, I would say, of what Proverbs is talking about and what I'm talking about would be, as I mentioned in a recent podcast, Emily Ratajkowski. Emily Ratajkowski fans left confused after model confirms baby's gender. The star named her son Sylvester Apollo Bear. And it becomes okay to say son here because even though Emily Ratajkowski said we are going to have a gender neutral household and we won't know really whether this child she was pregnant with before this story Uh, We won't know whether this child is a boy or a girl or a male or a female or a man or a woman until they're 18 and can decide for themselves and tell us. Nevertheless, she captioned the intimate shop of her and Sylvester Apollo Bear on Instagram, quote, beautiful boy. And her fans were very confused, some of them, because they said, well, wait a second. Didn't you say you were going to wait and hold off on anything to do with gender? And what is this now? And the point is, she couldn't keep up that facade and that's her whole <laughs> that's her whole shtick that's how she's famous is that she has a beautiful facade and yet when it comes right down to it there's no denying that this baby is born and this baby is well, let's check a boy or in some other case a baby is born and you say oh let's check yep it's a girl what happens when we reject god's categories of male and female of good and evil, of wisdom and folly, is every kind of disorder, every kind of dissension, all kinds of awfulness. And I don't mean to pile on a particular mother, but it is to say this is a type of mother that exists in our society, which we shouldn't be celebrating. And we definitely should not be treating with partiality just because she's a woman, just because she's a mother. Not all mothers are upstanding and excellent and virtuous. Some are, and when they are, they're known by their children. We should praise them. We should honor them. But so also fathers. When fathers do well, we should praise them, and they are known by their children. And when mothers and fathers don't do a good job, we should also call them to account. We should also tell them, "Uh, no, that's not good. That's not right. That's not appropriate. And if they don't listen, well, then there will be consequences if this child is hellbent and if they get up to no good and they are 
a public nuisance and awful. And if they are doing what is well and what is good, we shouldn't lump in the innocent with the guilty. Neither should we absolve the guilty because we want to be gentlemen towards women. But all of this reminds me of a situation from yesterday that just happened, wherein I was working from home in the afternoon, about mid-afternoon, and one of my sons came into my office and he says, hey, dad, um, there's a guy outside who's yelling at Eli, and could you please come out? He's asking to speak with you. And so I get up and I'm not knowing what to expect. That's all I've heard. And I have a sense of urgency because I it could be anybody for any reason. It could be somebody who is criminally insane, somebody who's high on drugs, somebody who's drunk, somebody who's just a bad character who doesn't think the man of the house is home, who doesn't think the paterfamilias is home. Come to find out this guy is just moving in and he was told by three of his family members who are helping him to move in that some teenager is trying the doors on his truck, trying to get in. And so he comes out the front door, not having seen these things himself, hot, ready for a confrontation because he thinks somebody is breaking into his vehicle, trying to steal things. And meanwhile, I'm coming out the front door, hot under the collar. I probably looked and sounded like I was ready to fight somebody because go figure, I was ready to fight somebody. (laughs) I'm the man of the house. I am the paterfamilias. I will protect my children and my wife and my household. But I come out and Lauren's trying to get all of the kids inside the house. And John, our four-year-old, was taking his time on the scooter and not in any hurry whatsoever. No sense of urgency there. And so I'm like, hey, John, you need to get inside. Your mom is calling for you. Go right now. Go immediately to your mother. And he did. And then I come around the corner and here is this young guy, a little bit younger than me, not all that much younger, but here's this guy and he's still all worked up. And apparently he'd asked to speak to my son's mother. Is your mother home? I want to speak to your mother right now. And to his credit, he realized, and he told me this after we got things calmed down and de-escalated. I shook his hand and introduced myself and welcomed him to the neighborhood. Uh, but he he explained, he says, I realized I'm yelling back and forth with somebody else's kid. And I probably shouldn't be doing that. I should probably speak to this kid's parent. And I said, yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I understand. <laughs> I get it. Uh, it turned out it was all a misunderstanding because my son, not even that son, not even Eli, it was Solomon, was riding in the street on his rollerblades and was losing his balance and reached out to catch himself so that he didn't fall, reached out and grabbed this guy's mirror, accidentally turned it. And so then he's trying to back up and he's trying to straighten up the mirror and brace himself on the vehicle. And next thing you know, somebody sees it out of context and they think, what? They're brand new to the neighborhood. They're coming from maybe a different neighborhood, a different part of town where there are a lot of break-ins. There could be break-ins in this part of town too. And they think, this kid's trying to break into that truck. Hey, we can't have that. Hey, stop, stop, thief. And it wasn't that at all. But what it was, was one son was seen out of context and misunderstood. And my other son, who (laughs) suffered from a case of mistaken identity, because he is about the same height as his brother and was also rollerblading, this other son gets yelled at and he knows he didn't do anything. And so what does he say to this guy? This new neighbor, he says, you need to get your eyes checked. 
And so then we had a conversation about that. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. You know, as our new neighbor pointed out to me, <laughs> quite rightly, it's not exactly a respectful way to respond to somebody. You owe him an apology. I want you and Saul, Eli, you and Saul, go next door, apologize. And they did. And it actually worked out even better than if there had been no misunderstanding because he ended up bringing some cookies, went over to the store, bought some sugar cookies with icing and said, here, these are for you. I'm really sorry for getting bent out of shape. We, we just moved into this house and it's a mess. And the previous tenants trashed it and we weren't prepared for that. We didn't expect that. It's just awful. It's ugly. And I'm just having a bad day. And I apologize. I'm not going to be a bad neighbor. My name is fill in the blank. My wife's name is fill in the blank. My sister's name is fill in the blank. My kids, uh, we want to be good neighbors. And thank you for being cool. Thank you for having a good attitude. It all worked out very well. It was a teachable moment for my kids and for me and for my wife. It was very instructive. But I say all of this to make a larger point, which is that we need fathers in the home. Now, if you work outside the home, you work out in the field somewhere, in ag or in oil and gas, like I have for most of the past 10 years, well, then maybe you just have to deal with certain things when you come home, but you've got to come home on a regular basis. You can't just say, I have the authority without taking the responsibility. So also we shouldn't pile on men the responsibility without also respecting that they should have the authority and they should be listened to when they give instructions or when they try to, in a preventative way, say, hey guys, here's how we should conduct ourselves. Here's how we should relate to people inside this home and outside this home. Because that's not happening, in so many cases in this country, we are seeing the breakdown of society and our political discourse is much the worse for it. An example of our political discourse being much the worse for it is a piece in the Denver Post. How Lauren Boebert's visit to a rural Colorado school started a small revolt against the district. Some district parents say Dolores Middle and High School never should have invited the polarizing congresswoman Conrad Swanson writes and published this April 21st. Disagreement seemed inevitable as U.S. Rep. Lauren Boebert is a polarizing figure. But Dolores School District Superintendent Reese Blinko didn't think the issue would linger for as long as it has or turn quite as sour for his small community in rural southwest Colorado. Blinko, a principal, and other officials have been under fire for weeks from a group of parents angry and concerned that the district invited Bobert to speak to several hundred students at Dolores Middle and High School last month for a civics discussion that turned somewhat political. And let me just stop right there. Let me just stop right there and say, before I go on, anybody who is not in a polarized or polarizing state right now is to my way of thinking equally suspicious <laughs> to those who are regarded as polarizing figures. I mean, just generally, I'm not a big fan of Lauren Boebert. I can agree with her on a lot of things in the particulars of the positions that she would take or the policy that she would support, the legislation that she would support. I can agree with her in a lot of the partic particulars. I can still also think to myself, I don't care for her way of engaging in politics. 
I disagree with some of the antics there, and also even just foundationally. Where is your husband, madam? Your husband should be the one representing your family and your community in the legislature. That is my conviction. You can call me a sexist if you want to, so be it. That is my position coming from God's word and recognizing that we have a lot of dysfunction in society. It starts in the home with women being the heads of the households, when it should be the men, it should be the husbands and the fathers, except in extreme circumstances where he has passed away, he's died, or he has had a terrible accident, or he he is mentally unwell and has a nervous breakdown or something like that. The men should be the heads of the households. We should expect that. We should call for that. We should require that of men. And we should require that women are also supportive of that. So I don't like that we have so many women in politics. I don't think it's a positive sign. I don't think it's progress. I think it's actually regress. I think it's a sign of a deteriorating society that this is the case. But nevertheless, it's a tad disingenuous to say that anybody would be surprised that a civics discussion would turn political. What do you think civics is? Civics is inherently political. (laughs) It is entirely political. Civics is political. Politics is civics. Civics is politics. If you don't particularly care for this congresswoman, well, that's one thing. And you can just say, I don't like her. I don't like what she stands for. I don't like how she acts. I don't like how she talks. I don't like anything about her. I don't even like the way she eats a sandwich. I don't like anything about her. Fine. But what kind of a civics lesson are you teaching if you say she can't even come and speak at your school to your students? You know, I I also find somewhat troubling when you have on the other side of it, Democrats who would come and speak at schools or other public events and then parents would get angry. I think there was an example here a couple of years ago, actually, that illustrates this. Governor Jared Polis, who is the governor of the state of Colorado. And I profoundly disagree with his politics. I don't approve of his lifestyle. I don't approve of how he has governed the state of Colorado. I think he's done a tremendous amount of damage to the state's economy and the social fabric of Colorado. And I think by extension, he's had a bad influence on the whole country, the whole of the United States of America, and by extension, the whole of the world is worse for his having taken the positions that he has and having acted as governor in the way that he has in many ways. I object to his politics, his prescription for what to do with the problems that we have, even what he would say are the problems that we have, that we need to do something about them. I disagree with strongly. And civics is... We find a civil way to discuss and debate that. And if there is misbehavior or folly or even criminality and sin on the part of our elected leaders, we provide accountability. But we do that in an orderly way, in a respectful way. We follow due process and we conduct ourselves with honor and integrity. And we show respect, even if you don't feel it towards the person or their policies or their lifestyle, you still show that respect for the person because they are in that position of authority. Well, so also with regards to Lauren Boebert, I don't think 
she should be causing a big uproar. And by that, I mean, not that she caused it, but that her presence upsets these parents and they want to make a big tizzy about it. And then the Denver Post wants to pick it up and make an example of this little school and highlight and amplify certain angry parents who object. I don't think that's so good. I also don't think it's so good on the other side of things. If a Democrat wants to come and speak and parents are all of a sudden furious and in an uproar, I don't think that's so good either. I say, let the governor come and speak and then let the parents speak as well and let the parents speak in return and in reply to the governor or the congresswoman. That's how you have civics lessons that are going to be good for these kids and for the community and for the state and for the nation. Unfortunately, that's not what we're getting. And I would draw it right back to the breakdown of the family and the breakdown of our fear of God. We have no fear of God before our eyes and it shows. Speaking of children, Joe Biden, president of the United States of America, another Democrat that I strongly disagree with. I could hardly disagree more strongly with both his lifestyle and his policy proposals, what he thinks are problems and then what he puts forward as the solutions, I believe are something out of opposite world to what I believe is good and right and true and beautiful and what I want this country to be led by and known for. But Harris Rigby over at Now the Bee posted just yesterday a small clip from a speech by Biden, tweeted out by townhall.com, in which Biden says, I quote, there's no such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all our children. And lest you suppose I am exaggerating, I will play the audio. I will play here Joe Biden in his own words. Take a listen. Rebecca put a teacher's creed into words when she said, there's no such thing as someone else's child. No such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all our children. And cut. Short and sweet, or bitter, as the case may be. Sweet for its shortness, maybe. All the sweeter for its shortness. Now, you can say he means something pleasant and warm about how we should all be looking out for each other's kids. And I do not take him that way. Not when the state of Washington just passed legislation and the official position of this administration is to promote climate policy and taking over our entire economy and the economy of the world, supposedly to protect our children, while at the same time, they are calling evil, borderline sinful states like Florida outlawing transgender affirming surgery for minors. And then you get the state of Washington passing legislation on the flip side, on the other end of the spectrum, saying if parents try to interfere with their minor child transitioning in their gender, going through surgery, using preferred pronouns, taking hormone uh, drugs and puberty blockers and all the rest, if parents interfere with that, children can be taken from their parents because that's child abuse. What Biden is articulating is the supposed moral justification for the law in Washington, the recent law in Washington state, and a vilifying of the state of Florida, on the other hand. 
for its recent law. What he's articulating when he says there's no such thing as someone else's child, our nation's children are all our children, we have to disagree with. We have to. You might as well say next, there is no such thing as someone else's wife. Our our nation's wives are all our wives. This is straight out of (laughs) the Communist Manifesto. This kind of thinking is straight out of the Communist Manifesto. And I don't make that up. I'm not exaggerating. I read it earlier this year. And Marx and Engels explicitly called for their vision of the ideal society, of the communistic society, including that children are held in common. There are no mothers and fathers who have exclusive parental rights. The children of the community are the community's children. These are all our children. And also, of a piece with it, no man can say, this is my wife. The wives and the women are all held in common, and they just get passed around based on what the interest is or the fancy is, based on the mood or what have you, the opportunity. And we see that. We see that as well. These ideas all go together, not for no reason, and they have to be rejected altogether. But this same Joe Biden has just announced as of yesterday his re-election bid He made it official at the age of 80 years old. And here at The Daily Wire, we have a piece talking about this, a piece by Greg Wilson. President Joe Biden made it official early Tuesday. He will run for re-election in 2024, despite the fact that he would be 86 at the end of a second term in the White House. Biden has widely been expected to announce the bid, even though his first term has been plagued by foreign and domestic policy missteps, and an approval rating stuck in the low 40% range. He made the announcement in a video shot earlier this month at his Rehoboth Beach, Delaware vacation home. Quote, Joe and Kamala are running for re-election. We need your help to spread the word. Share this video with your friends. Well, I'm going to go ahead. In the interest of civic engagement here, I'm going to go ahead and play the video, not just tell you about it, not just give you it second and third hand. I'm going to go ahead and play this video, and then I have some thoughts. Here is Cut 4. Take a listen. Freedom. Personal freedom is fundamental to who we are as Americans. There's nothing more important, nothing more sacred. That's been the work of my first term, to fight for our democracy. This shouldn't be a red or blue issue protect our rights, to make sure that everyone in this country is treated equally and that everyone is given a fair shot at making it. But you know, around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms. Cutting Social Security that you paid for your entire life while cutting taxes for the very wealthy. Dictating what health care decisions women can make. Banning books and telling people who they can love. All while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. 
That's why I'm running for re-election. Because I know America. I know we're good and decent people. I know we're still a country that believes in honesty and respect and treating each other with dignity. That we're a nation where we give hate no safe harbor. We believe that everyone is equal, that everyone should be given a fair shot to succeed in this country. Thank you for choosing Thank us. You. Every generation of Americans has faced a moment when they have to defend democracy. Stand up for our personal freedom. Stand up for the right to vote and our civil rights. And this is our moment. If you're with me, go to JoeBiden.com and sign up. Let's finish this job. I know we can. Because this is the United States of America. There's nothing, simply nothing we cannot do if we do it together. And cut. <clears throat> that is the end of the ad. That's the ad in its entirety. And by the way, this is why I want to talk about everything, and that includes the announcement video for Joe Biden's re-election campaign just announced. He is running for re-election in 2024, and I want to talk about it. And this is why I do long-form podcasts, because I don't want to take some 30-second soundbite and have a viral video where I'm doing the same thing. They're very good at this. On the left, they're very good at the 30 second soundbite. But the reason they're very good at it is because they have to be very good at the 30 second soundbite in order to get people to vote with their feelings, first and foremost. And how are we feeling? I'm not with Joe Biden, and I am not taken in by the positive association and the negative association. It's very artful in its way, but this is an evil art. And this is sowing discord among brothers to say, we're all in this together and there's nothing we can't do if we all work together on it. And we believe in treating everybody with respect and dignity and we believe in freedom, except for those so-called MAGA extremists, those MAGA Republicans, those insurrectionists, those January 6th radicals, those guys have got to go. And then all will be well. But we're for democracy. Even if democracy requires silencing our political opponents, we are for democracy, even if it means silencing the people who would vote differently. And therein lies the whole problem with the Democrats. They say they are for these transcendental universal values. And when someone would vote against them or argue against them, how do they respond? How do they react? Therein lies the question. How they respond, how they react is to release a announcement video for a 2024 re-election campaign 
in which the images that they start with, which you couldn't see in just the audio, obviously, but I could see, the images that they start with are from January 6th. And that's what they want you to associate Republicans with. Meanwhile, when he is speaking in the most glowing of terms about his candidacy, he wants you to see images of a beautiful, clear night's sky on the 4th of July and fireworks bursting in air. And his meeting with various groups, unions, for instance, activists, for instance, and smiling and the people smiling when they speak to him or listening to him very seriously. It's all impressions. It's all optics. It's all smoke and mirrors. And you're supposed to feel a certain way according to their campaign about him and about his political opponents. You're supposed to feel a certain way, but really, let me ask you, how are you feeling with the state of the economy? How are you feeling with our place in the world relative Russia and China? How are you feeling with what happened in Afghanistan? How are you feeling with inflation and banking crises? How are you feeling with revelations coming out of Elon Musk purchasing Twitter that the Democrats in the bureaucratic state have been going after conservatives for years. They've had almost unfettered access, unlimited access to the levers of power where the public discourse is concerned. How are you feeling about the idea that we're for open dialogue as long as you say exactly what I want you to say? We're for freedom as long as you do exactly what I want you to do. We're for economic opportunity so long as you're willing to pay a higher price for literally everything, and it might be cost prohibitive for you to buy what you need. And the necessities of life include food and appropriate housing and clothes and energy to keep the lights on or fuel your vehicle. How are you feeling about the job that the Democrats have been doing? So sowing discord among brothers, for one thing, but also confusing children about whether they are boys or girls, whether they should be attracted to a person of the opposite gender and then get married to them and then have families of their own. How are you feeling about the way that the Democrats relate to the unborn and to women and to men and to racial differences? How are you feeling about the way that the Democrats exploit every trick in the book to get power for themselves and then run this country into the ground? How are you feeling about that? Personally, I am not feeling so good about it. It pains me. It hurts as a breadwinner, as a paterfamilias, some would say, but as the head of the household, as I would say, as a husband, as a father, as a man, I'm feeling not so good about the efforts to destroy my ability to make a living and provide for my family, protect my family. I'm not feeling so good about what the Democrats want to do in promoting criminality in big cities at the same time as they are trying to take away firearms from law-abiding citizens like myself and demonizing law-abiding citizens such as myself. If we object and say, that's not correct, that's not good, that's not fair, that's not true, that's not constitutional, 
that's not biblical to any of what they propose. I'm not feeling so good about the way that I am maligned and men like me are maligned by the Biden administration. I'm not feeling so good about their promotion of so-called environmental justice. I'm not feeling so good about these things, and you shouldn't either. But let's go back to my home state of Montana and check in on how things are going there. Speaking of civics, speaking of what we can do together. Protesters disrupt Montana House over trans lawmaker standoff. The Daily Wire News reports, shouting protesters disrupted the proceedings of the Montana House of Representatives on Monday, leading to several arrests of people demonstrating in support of a transgender lawmaker who is being silenced after lashing out at colleagues. In a scene reminiscent of what happened at the Tennessee Capitol building last month, demonstrators filled the gallery and chanted, let her speak when the GOP-led chamber voted to uphold a gag order on state rep Zoe Zephyr, Democrat from Missoula, who was in the room and held up a microphone. NBC Montana tweeted out, protesters chanted, let her speak at a Montana House session while rep Zoe Zephyr held a microphone in the air. Republican leaders in the legislature doubled down on their decision to continue to forbid her from participating in debate. And herein lies the question, what kind of a debate is it when Zoe Zephyr's remarks were that she, as she would prefer to be called, but he, as he was born, said, I hope when we are praying next for the invocation, when you look down, you see blood on your hands. If you pass this legislation barring so-called gender-affirming surgeries for minors, I hope you look down and see blood on your hands. That's what Zoe Zephyr is being censured for. And is this Biden's America? Is this not what the Democrats want? Exactly this. Otherwise, why do we see it again and again? And do we see any leadership from President Biden telling people storming state capitals, don't do that? That's not the way. Do we see any leadership from leftist corporate media saying, this is not the way, this is not okay? No, quite the opposite. But the images that they want you to have stuck in your mind of storming capitals have everything to do with demonizing Republicans. When the Republicans walked into the state capitol and were invited in by Capitol Police and even escorted around the building, as in the case of the so-called QAnon shaman, that's what footage revealed, is that Capitol Police actually escorted him around the inside of the Capitol building before taking him to the chamber where he posed for his photo op behind the lectern. The Democrats want you to think Republicans are the ones doing all this. It's very obvious that that was a setup. It was a trap. It was a photo op. It was made for TV and that they have no consistency. When the Democrats do it, when the left does it, they say that it's for democracy. If Republicans are baited into doing it, well then, that's the end of democracy. What they really mean when they say our democracy depends on this or that is our re-election chances. Our grasp on power depends on it. That's what they really mean. That's what you need to hear. But moving on, some conservatives are trying to play the game of the left right back. Here I have in view Ryan Webb, 
County Councilman in Delaware County, Indiana. Harambe over at Not the Bee published a piece just yesterday. Lefties are furious at this Indiana County Councilman for announcing he's a lesbian woman of color to own the libs. I'll read for you his post to Facebook that created the controversy, gave rise to the controversy. For immediate release, April 12th, after much consideration, I have decided to come out and finally feel comfortable announcing my true, authentic self. It is with great relief that I announce to everyone that I identify as a woman, and not just any woman, but as a woman of color as well. I guess this would make me gay, lesbian as well, since I am attracted to women. Whew, that felt good to finally get that out there and start living life as my true self. I'm excited to bring some diversity to the county council. Until today, we didn't have any females of color or LGBTQIA, PC, plus, plus, plus on the council. I'm glad that now we do. To avoid confusion, everyone can continue to address me as Ryan or as Councilman Webb. I will also retain my preferred pronouns of he, him. However, this will in no way diminish my true identity as a woman of color. I'm excited to be a vocal partner of the LGBTQIAPC++ movement. Who knows just how far we can take things, but I'm just glad that this is now possible so anyone can be anything or anyone they want. God bless America. Edit, it has come to my attention that I am more than likely the very first lesbian woman of color in the history of Delaware County to ever serve on the Delaware County Council. I am honored to be the one to shatter that glass ceiling. Hashtag girl power. Mm. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> uh, a transgendered person, Charlize Jamison, has weighed in saying, was this really necessary? It's unbecoming of an elected official or a decent human being, for that matter. Webb replies, Charlie's Jameson, do you think you have the only password to the forbidden world of coming out? When you decided to become a woman, did people tell you it was unbecoming? Sorry, pal, but you don't get to be the decipher of who is acceptable and who isn't. I was hoping that you and I could be friends now that we're both ladies that used to be men. I'll give you some more time. Moving on. <laughs> uh, speaking of coming out, Fox stock dropped $1 billion minutes after Tucker Carlson departure. Brandon Dre reports for Daily Wire. April 24th, Fox Corporation, the parent company of Fox News Channel, saw its stock fall by $1 billion minutes after news broke. That is astounding. And there is a lot of speculation as to what drove this decision by Fox News to terminate abruptly their top talent, who is a ratings leader. Why did they show him the door abruptly? They didn't even give him a chance to say goodbye. His last show was on Friday, and that's part of what their announcement was. His last show was Friday, this past Friday. If you watch some clips from that show, he says, we'll see you Monday. So he didn't even know, obviously, at that point that they were letting him go. But it occurs to me that something that happened over the weekend was Tucker Carlson gave a speech in which he described the conflict between the right and the left in this country as actually a conflict between good and evil. This is not two morally equivalent political philosophies. This is good 
versus evil. It doesn't make sense if you reject those categories, what we're seeing from the left. It's not just a difference of opinion. And it's not just, hey, you know, we we uh, <clears throat> we come to uh, divergent conclusions on a couple of things, but we can work together. No, no. It's not just crazy. It's evil what they propose. Castrating little boys because mommy and daddy want to score points with the corporation they work for, the community they live in, the broader public. Castrate this little boy because he played with a pink Barbie Jeep of his sisters. And look at us. We're so brave. That's evil. Objectively, that's evil. Abortion is evil. The LGBTQ agenda is evil. Sowing discord among brothers is evil. What has been done with the two-tiered justice system in this country is evil. The censorship of conservatives online is evil. These are evil things that the left rewards or else turns a blind eye to. Everything that conservatives stand for in what is traditionally regarded as good, ethical, moral, godly, the left calls evil. Why are we not able to similarly say back, no, what you're proposing is evil. You are of your father, the devil. Repent. I find it interesting that Tucker's last program was Friday, and then he gave a speech saying that the debate in this country between the right and the left is a debate between good and evil. And next thing you know, Monday morning rolls around and he's gone. For the sake of you and your understanding of what it is that Tucker Carlson actually said, I'm going to go ahead and play for you a selection from Tucker's recent remarks over the weekend which immediately preceded his being abruptly fired by Fox News. Take a listen for yourself and see if you agree that this might have been what actually done him in. It might be time to start to reassess the terms we use to, to describe what we're watching. So when I started at Heritage, the presumption was, and this is a very Anglo-American assumption, that the debates we're having are kind of rational debates about the way to get to mutually agreed upon outcomes, right? So like we all want the country to be more prosperous and free and people to be less oppressed or whatever. And so we're gonna argue about tax rates and I think higher tax gets, gets us there. I'm a Keynesian and you disagree, you're an Austrian or whatever, but the objective is the same. And so we write our papers and they write their papers and may the best papers win. I, I, I don't think that's what we're watching now at all. I don't think we're watching a debate over how to get to the best outcome. I think that's completely wrong. And I've come to this conclusion, not, and I should say at the outset, I'm an Episcopalian, so don't take any theological advice from me, because I don't have any. I grew up in the foul, shallowest faith tradition that's ever been invented. It's not even a Christian religion at this point. Um, I say with shame. But I'm just saying this as an observer of what's going on. There is no way to assess, say, the transgenderist movement with that mindset. Policy papers don't account for it at all. If you have people who are saying, I have an idea, let's castrate the next generation. Let's sexually mutilate children. I'm sorry, that's not a political debate. What? There's nothing to do with politics. What's the outcome we're desiring here? An androgynous population? Is that really what we are? We arguing for that? I don't, I don't think anyone could like, defend that as a positive outcome. But the weight of the government and uh, you know, a lot of corporate interests are behind that. Well, what is that? Well, it's irrational. If you say, well, you know, 
I think abortion is always bad. Well, I think sometimes it's necessary. That's a debate I'm familiar with. But if you're telling me that abortion is a positive good, what are you saying? Well, you're arguing for child sacrifice, obviously. It's not about like, oh, a teen, you know, a teen girl gets pregnant and what do we do about that? And victims of rape, I, you know, I get it. I, of course I understand that. And I have compassion for everyone involved. But when the treasury secretary stands up and says, you know what you can do to help the economy get an abortion? Well, that's like an Aztec principle, actually. There's not a society in history that didn't practice human sacrifice. Not one. I checked. Even the Scandinavians, I'm ashamed to say. It wasn't just the Mesoamericans. It was everybody. So like, that's what that is. Well, what's the point of child sacrifice? Well, there's no policy goal entwined with that. No, that's a theological phenomenon. And cut. And exactly right. He's exactly right. And I think this is why Fox News fired Tucker Carlson. I don't see anything else. I don't see any other rational reason why they would fire him, except that he took it there. And he was right to take it there. And they are terrified to take to, they are terrified to take it there because, referring back to Neil Postman and Stephen Powers, how to watch TV news, even supposedly conservative or more conservative corporate media at the end of the day is primarily interested in making money and in having social credit. Fox News did what Ronald Reagan's advisors would have done if they could have done it when he called the Soviet Union the evil empire. And I don't see anything inconsistent between what Tucker Carlson just said there in that clip on the one hand, and what Ronald Reagan said in his evil empire speech to, by the way, the National Association of Evangelicals. It was not for no reason that Reagan was saying what he was saying to the NAE, the World Council of Churches, being the parent organization, the umbrella organization that the NAE belonged to, being very ecumenical, standing for nothing, falling for everything, was consistently drawing moral equivalence between the United States and the USSR. And Reagan said, the Soviet Union is evil. We're good, they're bad. We win, they lose. That's the prescription. And his advisors and the so-called experts in the bureaucratic state and in corporate media had about the same reaction that it seems to me Fox News just had to Tucker Carlson. They had about the same reaction except they didn't have the power to remove Reagan like Fox just demonstrated their power to terminate Tucker Carlson. Now, I agree with Megyn Kelly. This is a good thing for Tucker Carlson. He will be just fine. The Daily Wire folks also have come out and said that Tucker Carlson will be just fine. Fox News made a major mistake. They do not understand their audience. But then again, who are they trying to please? It's obvious who they are trying to please when they fire Tucker Carlson at this time. And I think it's a very similar phenomenon to what we observed with Project Veritas and James O'Keefe. Right after the biggest story of his life, the biggest story of Project Veritas's history, all of a sudden here come these frivolous complaints about James O'Keefe and we've got to force him out. We've got to get him out of here. And if you go digging, you'll find that there are people high up at Project Veritas and there are people high up at Fox News who 
are not there because they really believe in the mission. They're there to provide an emergency break if the script is departed from along certain lines and certain interests are threatened. This is corrupt. It's not just some random thing. No, no. This is a tip-off. This is a signal, which people who've been paying attention for a while have noticed there have been a lot of signals in recent years. And it's the reason why I've never really particularly cared for Fox News, and I've made no mystery about that. I've been very open about that. I haven't liked Fox News for quite some time because they're obviously in it for the money and for the power and for the influence. First and foremost, they're not in it for conservatism. But Alex Nitzberg over at The Blaze reports April 24th, people are canceling Fox Nation subscriptions after Tucker Carlson and the network split. Not only have they taken a major hit to their stock valuation, but they are losing subscribers. And for good reason. Why would people stick around? But we see this everywhere. Daniel Chayton over at The Daily Wire posts Jordan subpoenas FBI executive in conservative purge inquiry. This one's from yesterday. Rep. Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, subpoenaed a FBI executive in an escalation of an investigation into whistleblower allegations of politicization within the agency. A spokesperson for Jordan who heads the House Judiciary Committee as well as the subcommittee charged with investigating the weaponization of the federal government announced the development on Monday. Quote, today, Chairman Jordan issued a subpoena to Jennifer Lay Moore, Executive Assistant Director of Human Resources at the Federal Bureau of Investigation after she refused to answer questions during her transcribed interview about the FBI's retaliation against brave whistleblowers who have come forward to raise concerns about abuses they have seen at the Bureau, said Jordan spokesperson Russell Dye. The statement did not say when the interview took place, but a letter sent to Moore in late January accused her of obstruction for not complying with earlier requests for an interview. Here's a quote. She did not discuss the details of specific individuals whose cases are still under review to protect the integrity of the process and the privacy of the individuals. Quote, the FBI recognizes the importance of congressional oversight and remains fully committed to cooperating with Congress oversight requests consistent with its constitutional and statutory responsibilities. It's a very dry answer, and it's a very typical kind of response that we've seen again and again from the bureaucracy. When Republicans challenge what appears very blatantly to be political bias in these unelected bureaucracies, a political bias for the left, for the Democratic Party, driving out conservatives from the military, from those bureaucracies, from the U.S. government, going after conservatives who are just regular citizens with an extra energy when they are questioned, when they are challenged by Republicans. The canned response is, we can't comment on ongoing investigations. We can't comment on that. We can't comment on that. We can't. It's a pleading of the fifth. But here's the response. Quote, the FBI has responded to these concerns with a hollow assertion that FBI personnel must maintain objectivity and rigor in their work. Quote, while the FBI may well be holding line agents to the standard, FBI leadership and supervisors are actively purging those who dare to hold a differing opinion. End quote. This is very concerning. And it speaks to all the more rather than less of a need for 
citizens of this country to object to what is highly objectionable, to speak up, to provide accountability. We need more whistleblowers, not less. When whistleblowers are punished for drawing attention to what is unethical at best, unlawful at worst, when whistleblowers are punished, we need more whistleblowers. Otherwise, you will send the signal that there is no accountability and there won't be any accountability. And you will get harsher and harsher punishments for people who dare to say, no, this is not okay. This is not normal. This is not acceptable. Alexis de Tocqueville speaks to this in Democracy in America when he actually details how there were incentives for those who would bring forward complaints about people who held public office and were abusing their power, either neglecting their duties or abusing their authority for selfish gain. There were rewards offered, cash rewards, for citizens who would come forward and provide accountability. Why? Because otherwise people won't come forward. If you offer not just no reward, but punishment for people who bring forward a complaint, then it works in the opposite direction. And it speaks to corruption when whistleblowers are punished. Case in point, and I'll bring this back to the home level and the neighborhood level, when I hear that the neighbor next door who's just moving in wants to speak to me, he's yelling at my son, I come out ready for a worst case scenario, and then I find very quickly when I extend a hand to shake his, and I introduce myself, and I welcome to the neighborhood, and I say I take these things very seriously, it would be very out of character for my Sons, too, have been trying to break into your vehicle. That is not like them. And I will get to the bottom of this. We do not tolerate that in my household or even in this neighborhood. I will get to the bottom of this. Maybe this was a misunderstanding. What does that do? It puts my neighbor at ease that I am concerned for his well-being, that we want to be respectful, that he is not just being dismissed out of hand because, oh, no, you, how dare you? right? How dare you suggest that about one of my children? He doesn't know my children. He doesn't know me. But what's the impression of him if my response is immediately defensive and hostile? What's his immediate thought? One, maybe my sons are capable of that because I don't think they are capable of that at all. I won't even consider. I won't even hear the evidence, right? No, let me hear the evidence. Let me hear. Let me ask some follow-up questions. I want to know more about what was seen And could that possibly have been something else that you misinterpreted? Like, for instance, they're on rollerblades and they lost their balance and were just catching themselves. And as soon as I said that, as soon as I suggested an alternative possibility and pledged myself to go and investigate further, and we would come back and return to after I had a chance to consult with my children and my wife, as soon as I told him, I will get to the bottom of this, but in the meantime, is there a possibility of it being just misunderstanding. I watched him visibly calm down. And all of a sudden we were having a very different conversation. We were having a much more profitable conversation. And the problem we have right now is at the highest levels, the president of the United States himself, his own son is implicated in a great many crimes by virtue of a laptop that was dropped off for repair which there is a great deal of evidence, a great deal, a treasure trove of evidence to suggest it actually does rightfully belong to Hunter Biden. But Hunter Biden's laptop 
provides evidence for a great many crimes and unethical irregularities, which Biden would have been directly involved in. And when our bureaucracies are leveraged and our corporate media is leveraged and our social media online is leveraged to silence all of that rather than getting to the bottom of it and providing accountability where accountability is needed or providing a better explanation of what we're seeing, then this is criminal, this is immoral, this is ungodly, this is corrupt, this is perhaps even taking bribes from hostile foreign regimes and warlords and dictators and criminals. Well, it has the inverse effect. It has the exact opposite, an equal effect, equal and opposite effect in the other direction to what you just heard me explain about my interaction with our neighbor next door. And it's not it, it's not to say something is untoward about me if I say this is very problematic. This is deeply concerning. It is not actually a problem to do with me that I'm being insubordinate or disrespectful of those in authority. No, no. We have to be a nation of laws, not a nation where the president is the law. And then the worst men want that brass ring. They want that top spot because they know if they get it, they're untouchable and they can do whatever they want with that power. We don't want to be a country where what is right and wrong is completely arbitrary and might makes right. The worst kings who are held up as examples of why faith and politics should never mix from, let's say, English history, the worst kings, the Charleses and the Jameses, those worst kings held the divine right of kings to mean they could be completely immoral and lawless and godless, but because they had this position of authority and could say, Romans 13, you couldn't disagree with them, you couldn't investigate them, you couldn't question them, you couldn't provide any accountability, you couldn't disobey an order. If they wanted to tell you, you have to be complicit in my criminal activity, you had to obey because they're the king after all. And no authority is instituted among men except by God himself. All the while, what was conveniently neglected and ignored and forgotten and shouted down and punished with violence and deadly force was the reminder from men like Samuel Rutherford, Scottish Presbyterian minister who wrote Lex Rex, the law is king. What was ignored and thrown out in the whole counsel of God and all scripture being breathed out by God and profitable was that you have to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil, and that the law comes from God and that God has deposed plenty of kings throughout history, and that God is ultimately king. He is king of kings, and therefore, if a lower king tells us to do something that the most high God has told us to not do, we must obey God rather than men. If a lower level king tells us to not do something that God has told us to do, we must obey God rather than men. And if we, at a foundational presuppositional level, don't believe that, then every kind of corruption will come into our political system and has in this day. Our social institutions, our political institutions, our culture, our economy, all of it has been corrupted through the forgetting of, the willful ignorance of, the marginalizing of this very biblical truth that the reason we obey the king is because we honor God first and foremost. Because we obey God, we therefore obey the king. But if the king says you disobey God because I'm now your new God, 
We must obey God rather than men. We don't bow down. O king, live forever. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. Now, let me tell you briefly, and then I have to run. I'm out of time. Let me tell you briefly about another piece from the Denver Post. This one written by Helen H. Richardson, published April 16th, updated April 19th. Photos, Major General Maurice Rose Monument, Dedication and Ribbon Cutting Ceremony in Denver. A dedication and ribbon cutting ceremony was held for the new Major General Maurice Rose Monument erected in the Lincoln Veterans Memorial Park near the Colorado State Capitol. Rose is the most decorated battle tank commander in American history and the highest ranking Jewish soldier in World War II. He grew up in Denver in a prominent Jewish family and dropped out of high school to join the military. Rose served with valor in both world wars. He was killed in action while leading his men from the front in 1945. General Dwight D. Eisenhower was quoted as saying he was not only one of our bravest and best, but was a leader who inspired his men to speedy accomplishment of tasks that to a lesser man would have appeared impossible. And that's a direct quote. And I bring this to your attention in contrast with what else I've been telling you about the condition of America right now. I bring this to your attention because if we're not careful, we can be those lesser men who say, it's impossible. Nothing can be done about it. Just keep your head down. This man deserves a statue from what I'm reading here. This man is the kind of man we should remember and we should want to emulate. And he is not the kind of man that we are promoting and rewarding and praising today. Not when our heroes, thanks to the likes of Barack Obama and Joe Biden, our heroes, thanks to the corporate media and academia and the bureaucratic state, our heroes increasingly are men who dress up as women. They're the ones held up as examples of bravery, profiles and courage but they're villains. They are not selfless leaders of men trying to defend the innocent. They're the ones preying on the innocent. They are evil. What they do is evil, but what they do is evil because they are evil, because they have a sinful nature that is now run amok and has now become a litmus test, a loyalty test for all Americans. And it is a lever of power for the left to drive conservatives from every public space. And we have to recognize that, like Tucker Carlson said, this is not just a disagreement over policy. This is a contest of good and evil. Know that. He is absolutely right. He is completely correct in his saying that. And he couches it in, I think, remarkable honesty and humility to say, I don't come from some rich theological tradition. I'm nothing in the way of an example of some good Christian man. But I'm just saying this as an outside observer, just looking at it. This is good and evil, folks. It can't be reasoned with. It has to be fought. And if we're not willing to fight, well then, death, destruction. Lesser men see these kinds of moments in history and they say, what's the use? There's no point. And it's not that we should all aspire to have statues made of us, but we should aspire to have the kind of character that men who rightly deserve statues 
have demonstrated by their lives and, yes, even the manner of their death, leading from the front. This is a worthy cause. And just think of it. Think of what was happening to the Jews. Not just, but in particular, there was a special animus against the Jews, which the Third Reich, Adolf Hitler, the Nazis, turned into mass murder. First, the Jews were demonized, vilified, dehumanized. Next, they were driven from being able to own businesses or property of any kind. They were driven from pulpits and lecterns, removed from public office. Next, they were rounded up and put in concentration camps. Next, they were put to forced labor and all kinds of cruel experiments and tortures. Next, they were starved to death and gassed and incinerated and buried in mass graves. It matters what we believe. It matters whether we have categories of good and evil that decide where we find our purpose and belonging. Viktor Frankl's book is very relevant to understanding how people get sucked into the left and how difficult it is for them to get out. And this is also the importance of being kind even to our enemies in this country. And the left is my enemy, but I still want to be kind to those who are on the left because I want to overcome evil with good. If we don't have categories of good and evil, how can we overcome evil with what is good? Or do we not believe that evil is something that can exist in this country at scale. We don't believe it can happen here. That's folly. That is hubris. It is unwise and it is ignorant and it is wrong. It's not true. Briefly, I will play for you again Ronald Reagan's evil empire speech. And then I really truly do have to run. I have to go. Take a listen. Here is Ronald Reagan, 1983, speaking to the National Association of Evangelicals. Take a listen. Yes, let us pray for the salvation of all of those who live in that totalitarian darkness. Pray they will discover the joy of knowing God. But until they do, let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, they are the focus of evil in the modern world. It was C.S. Lewis who in his unforgettable screw tape letters wrote, the greatest evil is not done now in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not even done in concentration camps and labor camps. In those we see its final result, but it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried and minuted in clear, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. Well, because these quiet men do not raise their voices, because they sometimes speak in soothing tones of brotherhood and peace, because like other dictators before them, they're always making their final territorial demand, some would have us accept them at their word and accommodate ourselves to their aggressive impulses. But if history teaches anything, it teaches that simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. It means the betrayal of our past, the squandering of our freedom. 
So I urge you to speak out against those who would place the United States in a position of military and moral inferiority. You know, I've always believed that old Screwtape reserved his best efforts for those of you in the church. So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely uh, declaring yourselves above it all and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. There you have it. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.